Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and host of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to the fifth episode of The Nuanced Life. We hope that you have been enjoying our discussions. We are certainly enjoying your feedback on them. Mm-hmm. And would love to ask if you are enjoying this podcast that you subscribe, rate, and review it in the Apple Podcast Player. That helps more people find The Nuanced Life. And as Sarah has said very eloquently before, both of our podcasts, Pantsy Politics and The Nuanced Life, are made so much better because of the community of people who listen to them and participate in the discussion along with us. So building that community only enhances the quality of the content that we're able to bring to you. So thank you in advance for your reviews. Today we are going to talk about whether or not we exist to make our children happy. Spoiler, the answer is no. But we're going to have a more nuanced discussion about it, I promise. But before we do that, we are going to talk about some interesting things we discovered this week. Beth, you want to go first? I discovered this article called The Secret Life of Um, and I'm so excited about it. Um, meaning um, the verbal tick that we all yeah. use to. Um, like the word I love. I so, I also enjoy so and um. There are lots of verbal ticks, and I think as you get to know different people, we've all come up with our own formulations of these. But this article from The Atlantic points out how rapidly we feel compelled to respond to each other which is like 200 milliseconds after someone stops talking, you think you have to respond. And that is faster than our brains actually work. There is a Mm -hmm. lot to say about that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take more than 200 milliseconds to respond. But see how painful that was just then? That was not very much time. And I was kind of like, better hurry up and talk. Better hurry up and talk. Yeah, it's really hard. And because I always feel so guilty about it because I have been indoctrinated that like you should listen to what someone is saying carefully and not be crafting your response. Like I've been so that's become such of my social part of like my inner dialogue that I feel myself shaming myself every time I'm like kind of thinking of what I want to say because I'm like, you're being a bad listener. But that this article made me feel a little bit better. Like, no, that like our brains, that's just the, that's how conversations work. And our brains have to they need more time. It's OK. So we use these verbal tics because we can't stand the silence but we need the processing space. Mm. And this person says that the author of the book about this says, look, our language is always happening at multiple levels. This is what distinguishes us from animals. We're not only communicating about a physical thing with our language. We're also communicating about language itself. So if I ask a question and you say, um, or so, or well, or whatever it is you say, you're just signaling to me, I'm going to answer your question like you expect me to. I just need a second to come up with my answer. But he also talks about how um can be used as deception because you're actually just trying to claim more of the space of the conversation for yourself. And I thought that was fascinating as well. Reclaim my time. Reclaim my time. I'm reclaiming my time. (laughs) Did you see what I just did there? Um. This reminds me of a really interesting insight I had from a friend over the weekend who said, he said, let me give you some elderly wisdom gained over my years. It's not even that old, but whatever. He was advocating for responding, not reacting. But he made the most interesting point, which was he said, you know, often as an employer, my employees come to me and they have been thinking about this all weekend, right? They've been thinking about this issue. They've been fuming on it. They've built their case. 
and they want me to respond and make a decision right there when I, I've learned I have to say, okay, well, I'm just now getting this, so give me some time to think about it. And I thought how often I'd do that, especially if somebody, like, sort of appeals to my go-to emotions, like if it's unfairness or any sort of lack of justice in a scenario that I'm like, I'm like, okay, ready. Let's just, let's go burn it down. Let's do this. And then I'm like, he's so right. Like they've had time to, to really ponder on this and spend the time they needed, but it's still just one perspective. I just thought that was really interesting. Obviously you, you worked in HR, so you're probably, you're probably like, duh, Sarah. It is hard though. One of the most interesting phenomenons I've observed in that regard is when someone comes to tell you that they are quitting or retiring and you can see like this physical cloud of energy around them mm. where they've been preparing for this conversation. It's been building and building and building. And they're so anxious usually to share this information with you. And I always notice that as soon as they get it out and I respond in some supportive way, their whole physicality changes. It's just such a relief to have shared this. And I think that's such an interesting thing about language, that we can be kind of living this life inside our, inside our head mm-hmm. and have all this buildup around the life that we're living inside our head. And just externalizing it changes us. Okay, this is a thing. I heard, did you listen to, what's the business podcast you like so much? Being Boss. Being Boss had Tara Sophia Moore, who I love, on there. And she was talking about how her and her husband debrief every night and they make a commitment to each other to not respond, to just let the person talk and express themselves without trying to fix it or respond. Because there's something about when you're feeling an emotion, you have to use the other side of your brain to pull it, to take it and put it into language. Like you're literally exercising a second, a different part of your brain, which just the act of doing that changes how you feel about the situation because you're now exercising a different part and a different skill um, in your brain. And I thought that that made so much inherent sense to me. And I thought that is so true. I think this is why I'm so emotionally healthy right now is because I talk to you for like three hours a week and I have to put it into words. And people say, well, how do you deal with the stress of the news? I'm like, well, I talk it out for two hours a week. If you did that, you'd feel better too. I think that's right. And that our conversations are another thing I thought about while I'm reading this article, because so many people have commented to me about the podcast that I am like a master of the pregnant pause mm. where you'll say something and I let it hang for a while before I respond. And I never feel like I'm doing that. But when I read 200 milliseconds, yeah, I probably do wait more than 200 milliseconds before responding. Some people really like that, and some people say it makes them crazy. I get both sets of feedback, and I totally understand it. I just do feel like I need a second to think, and I am trying to really listen. And and also, sometimes you've said something that I think needs to breathe for a minute, you know, mm-hmm. so we can all think about it together. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of thinking of things together, this week I have gotten some really great feedback on our previous episode, so that's what I wanted to talk about. Um, first, everybody made an excellent point about my observation about airplanes, which is um, on the most pragmatic, logical level, people dress comfortably on airports because they are squeezing you and squeezing you and squeezing you. Like, yeah, you could wear pantyhose and a slip when the seats were twice as large. You know what I mean? And it wouldn't have been such a commitment. That's an excellent point. Elizabeth took it further and I thought had an amazing email to us. She said, one thing I wish you would have touched on when discussing clothes, especially in public spaces like airports and planes and even churches, the idea of institutional context and how people are treated. I will say that the people should dress better on airplanes idea makes my blood boil because airplanes treat people like absolute shit. Flying is so completely dehumanizing and insulting. The enforced hierarchy of mileage level, the disrespect for personal space, etc. People act like assholes on airplanes because the industry treats them with no respect and flying is just an exercise in being insulted. This applies more broadly throughout the culture. People dressing like a middle finger consider their socioeconomic status and why they might want to dress that way. If we want people to dress or present themselves better, our consumerist transactional culture needs to evolve into something different first. Preach it, Elizabeth. Preach it. I thought that was so good. I agree. Another thing that came up about this is the idea of contrast. On our Facebook page, we had a couple of people observe that when they had professional jobs that required them to dress up every day, they like to dress down for church. Yeah, I thought and that was a really good versa. point. Yeah, and I think really that's interesting beyond clothes. 
just mm-hmm. the need for contrast in our lives. I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, and this is something I'm going to need your resource Sherpa advice on. Thinking about leaving my office job and being in my house all the time and looking for contrast, I am interested in how I navigate that because I have <laughs> had a lot of contrast in my life for the 11 years that I have done my job. And now I'm going to have less of that. And I think that I thrive a little bit on contrast and and need to be thinking about that. Yeah, you're going to have to, like, really change your house around. I'm just going to be straight up with you. Your house is like a new – it might as well be a different – you might as well have just bought a new house. Like, your life is totally different. Your house is going to have to change, too. I think everything is. I think it's Mm -hmm. the conversation we had a while ago. It's a new marriage. I'm a new mom. It's a new new house. house. It's all new things. Yep, totally. The other piece of feedback I wanted to share, which was amazing, is I got an email from Dave with the subject line, what did Californians ever do to you, Sarah? He referenced my um, recent uh, mildly disparaging remark about California in the um, context of casual clothing. And he said, but this isn't just Sarah. California repeatedly ranks dead last in polls about which states are most beloved, but number one and most hated. Other podcasts and shows not based in California drop an anti-California bias. Why? And my favorite part is he said, recently you just listener feedback from a baby boomer who felt the remarks in the podcast made her feel insulted or excluded. You acknowledged her feelings and graciously apologized. I don't want any of that, Sarah. I'm asking you to be critical. Be unfair. Be unnuanced. Paint with too broad of a brush. We can take it. I'm turning to you for clarity on why the rest of the country seems to have such a distaste for Californians. And he is a lifelong Californian, obviously. So, okay. Here's the first thing. I really wasn't being disparaging. I really think California culture has pervaded the nation. And part of California culture is there is a casualness about life there. So I really wasn't trying to be disparaging. I really do think that they are sort of responsible for the increasing casual nature of our society. Um, that is that is a part of my answer, though, because and let me just say, for the record, I spent every summer of my childhood in California. My father moved to California when I believe I was like five. Um, my parents are divorced, so I spent all summer out there with him. He used to live in Fremont in Northern California. He now lives in Bakersfield in Southern California. I have spent a lot of time in California. So I promise this is not just based on stereotypes. So what am I, my beef with California personally is really just personality. So, you know, as people say, like you can feel when I talk on The Nuance Life that I don't know if conservative is the right word for it. Traditionalist? I don't know. But there is just a part of me that, like, I talk about being a ninth-generation Kentuckian all the time. I like history. I like a sense of grounding. I like tradition. I like um, sort of a sense of social cohesion and um, sort of we do this because we have – like – I don't really want to say, like, politeness that the South is known for because I think that's way displaced in a t- kind of a crappy, inaccurate stereotype, too. But, you know, I was raised with a very intense sort of awareness for the community, awareness for others. And I think for better or for worse, the culture in California, and I think we could talk about all the historical reasons. I mean, I think a lot of people, including my own father and my aunt and half my family, moved to California because... Like, they wanted to, like, you know, it's the pioneers. They wanted to pay their own ways. They wanted to wait, make lots of money. And and I'm the girl who, like, moved away from a big city to move home because I think it's important to, like, be family and stick by your community. And so, like, it, there's just – I don't think one way is right or the other. Just personality-wise, I drift one way, and I think the culture of California is different. So I think that might be some of the beef people have with California is this – it's a very individualistic culture, for better or for worse, because of the movie industry and – Los Angeles, it's seen as a very shallow culture. I don't think that's fair necessarily, but I do think that's the stereotype. I think some of it, like, legitimately might just be jealousness because you have beaches and all this beautiful landscape. So I don't think that can be underplayed. And I think, but I think the other thing I was going to say about leading the way with casual clothing is that for better or for worse, California is sort of, it's the one who, like, pushes us, right? California does it first, then everybody kind of follows along, I think is sort of the popular narrative. How accurate that is, you know, is debatable. But there is a lot of like California's like, this is the way to do it. We're going to be more environmentally friendly. We're going to be more progressive in our politics, whatever it is, we're going to be more open and diverse populations. And I think it it just always feels, and maybe this is more like liberal bias too, like people's attitudes towards liberalness generally, but it's very like, I think it feels preachy to the rest of the country. I think the other rest of the country feels like California thinks it's better than them. Now, I adore, I mean, literally like my top 20 people that I love in my life, like a solid 
probably 30% of them live in California. Like, I got people people who are like De- Leslie, friend of the pod, dedicated Californian, loves it. Like, loves that place the way I love Kentucky. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's, <laughs> it's like a character flaw, but I do think that's sort of the stereotypical kind of back and forth people have with the state. What do you think, Beth? Am I, am I far off? I don't think so. I think that it's coastal generally. A lot of what you're saying applies. And California and New York have become the shorthand Mm -hmm. for coastal. And I also think a lot of it has to do with media. I think when people say California, what they mean is Hollywood. And when they say New York, they mean New York City. And I do think that there is a sense of, well, people there believe the rest of the country is just flyover country. Mm -hmm. And we'll show them that we're actually where people you know, care about each other and work hard and don't just want to throw it all away and be a dancer to use the the worst attitude mm-hmm. underlying all of this. Now, I have spent very little time in California. I think I would love it there. I think you it would. takes you would a lot California. of boxes for me, right? Yeah, you um, really would. And, and I, unlike Sarah, I love Kentucky too, but I'd be happy to live anywhere. I worked in college for a woman who was an executive recruiter in the banking space. Brilliant woman. Taught me a lot. And she had moved all over the United States during her adult life. And I loved listening to her talk about the country because she had lived so many places. Mm. She just understood so much about the country that I didn't. And see, that makes me nauseous. That makes me nauseous. And the funny thing is about this for everybody for a little background. Beth has only lived in Kentucky and I have lived other places. That's right. I I would love to move. If if my husband were not more like you, Sarah, I (laughs) would be all over the place, probably. One thing that sticks out to me, and this is a little disparaging, too, and so, you know, please take it in a lighthearted way. One time we were talking about Oklahoma, and she just off off the cuff goes, I lived in Oklahoma for five years. The song's right. Oklahoma's okay. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's just okay. (laughs) That's what it is. And I love that she had, like, a little insight like that about so many places and it really gave her an upper hand in everything she did because she knew how to meet people where they were. It's part of, I think why she's so brilliant at her job because she has all that life experience and I would love to have that. So I don't have any disdain for California. When you said that about California, I was like, we're going to get emails about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I just love how he said it. Like I'm not, you don't have to apologize. I just want to know why everybody hates us. (laughs) I do think for me, it's not hatred at all, No, but I do think there is that sense of, Sometimes when Sarah and I talk with people from larger cities, I'm going to include D.C. in here, too. I do feel myself and I check this. I try to check it. I feel myself on the defensive a little bit because I anticipate being treated like I'm from Kentucky Mm -hmm. and that that's a negative in the mind of the person who's reaching out to me. Because I did. When I moved to D.C., I got treated like I was from Kentucky, and people said all kinds of ridiculous things to me about the place from which I came. So, you know, and I think, too, I think there is so much. Honestly, I think there is so much to this, to, like, our sort of state cultures and our state hang-ups. This is why I, um, I'm i not totally opposed to the Miss America pageant, because I think it's a good place to exercise our um, stately anxieties and competitions in a sort of innocuous way. I'd like to say that I'm totally opposed to the Miss America pageant. <laughs> I am opposed to it. I just think we got to have some space to get out the, like, my state is better than yours in, like, a way that when there's not hardcore consequences, you know? Like, I think there's a little bit of that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, you know, I kind of, I think it's the way me and my, if, as long as, like, again, it sort of goes back to what we say. As long as you prioritize the relationship, you know, as long as we all remember that we're Americans first and foremost. But, like, my friends I love, like, we bust on each other's states, and it's fine. Pam Huber, a longtime supporter of the pod, said, I about spit my coffee out when you said that. And I was like, I knew you would love that. Okay, but although Pam left to another part of the left California, which couldn't afford it. That's my other beef with California is it's too dang expensive for what it is. Like, it's just ridiculous. I don't understand how much everything costs there. But, I mean, I think that that, I think there's a lot mixed up in there, just like there's a lot of things mixed up in how we feel about a lot of states. I think, it, you know, but I kind of, I don't know. I think it's what makes us... Americans fun like it's kind of fun to get our like sort of state um, competitive spirits going I don't know 
We just take it to such an extreme, though. I grew up in western Kentucky, right across from Evansville, Indiana, and we would talk about Indiana like people from Indiana were dogs. It was awful. (laughs) And for what? For what? And I think that we exercise a lot of this rivalry in sports in ways that get really unhealthy. I think competition is fun and great as long as it's lighthearted. We don't do lighthearted well. And honestly, I think a lot of this translates into the way we treat each other. You know, if you're having conversations and you're talking about somebody like they're worthless, it's usually to make yourself feel good. That's what this Word. whole state thing is, right? Yep. I'm better than you, so I feel good. We should I mean, stop Kentucky that. actually is superior to other states. Just want to make sure that's on the record. Like, I want that on my permanent record, wherever my permanent record exists. Kentucky is a superior state. I just want to just say that. I think it is lovely that you feel that way. <laughs> also... <laughs> completely false and I mean it's a it's a nice place to live there are tons of nice places to live in the United States and I just think we need to back off this a little bit because I I do worry that we have done I'll quote Casey Musgraves because I know you love her and you'll and that's believe what I was it's gonna true say about Oklahoma because Oklahoma produces its disproportionate fair share of great country music singers including Casey Musgraves I meant to say that when you said something about Oklahoma so keep keep doing what you're doing Oklahoma So she says, pouring salt in my sugar won't make yours any sweeter. And I think that's what's going on here and that we should back up off it a little bit. I mean, I don't know. I do feel better when I bust on Tennessee. I just do. What is that? I don't, I I, I love that. I sing a part along with that song every time. I just think it's fun. I think it does. Okay. I'm going to disagree slightly with Casey Musgraves. I think it does make your sugar a little bit sweeter when there are no stakes. That's what I mean about Miss America. Like when we're literally just arguing over like whose cocktail is better. Who cares? No one cares. It doesn't matter. So that's why it's fun to argue about it. Because we can like get it out of our system when when it's something that like literally no one cares about. You know what I mean? I guess. I don't need that. I mean, I love Kentucky basketball. Like, that's maybe where I get this out yeah, of my you, system. Yeah. But I'll tell you, I don't love Kentucky basketball to the point that if they lose a game, it ruins my day. I try to keep it in a really healthy range. And that is not true of a large percentage of our state's population. Lord, that's so true. That is so true. I mean, yeah, I don't care about Kentucky basketball. That probably and should be on my permanent record, too. <laughs> you you might not want to say that too loudly since you're in a public official in know, Kentucky. Right? Sometime we will talk about why I believe there are stakes involved in Miss America, but that is another conversation. Let's True. move on. And we're going to talk about kids and happiness. clothing well I'm just of the mind that whatever makes them happy is okay and because my mama raised me halfway decently I didn't respond and say what I really want to say which is that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard so I was telling Beth about this we had this long conversation um I don't know which podcast y'all so I just want to say this right now on the record I cannot keep up with right now that we have that we've added the nuanced life where we're talking about things so just listen to both and follow along as best you can (laughs) um so we started talking about this and then we had an extended conversation about like, okay, well, what is our parenting philosophy if it's not just let what makes them happy? And you said, I've started practicing um, treating my children like adults. And I kind of, I, I won't lie, when you said that I like bristled a little bit because I don't, that's not how I feel. But I, when you, the more you talk to them, like we're saying the same thing. She just used a different word. And then Katie sent us this really great email. She was a special, she's a special education teacher and she said, Um, best discussion of parenting and treating kids like adults also got me thinking that our schools and our parenting and the language we use to describe both of these things. I'm starting to be more and more aware of language that talks about treating our kids like adults in the school setting. This is starting to simply be code for giving them work that is too hard or taking away any further semblance of childhood in many of our classrooms. Um, and so I think that's true, but I don't really think when you said adult, that's what you were meaning. What I, what I heard when you said it, when I like just got past the word of the word adult was, which is something I believe, which is acknowledge like their children but still value them the same as you would adult which I don't think we do 
A couple of things. Yeah, I think that a better way to have said it, and this is something that I've said before, is to treat them like people, not like pets, Mm -hmm. where we're not trying to just delight them and keep Mm -hmm. them comfortable in every way. The other thing, though, about Katie's message, which I did really appreciate and value, when she talked about what we mean in schools when we start to talk about treating children like adults, I don't like those standards for adults either. Okay, so I don't... I think there's a whole conversation to be had, and I think we'll have some of it today about how measuring everything, defining your worthiness through your bank account or your title, yeah, let's that's just not stop, success. Let's just stop externally motivating everyone. Yes, 100%. We can all just stop that. But when I say I want to treat my kids like adults, I think I mean a couple of distinct things. The, the first and primary thing is not treating them like pets, treating them like people, trying to develop some capacity for resilience and disappointment and difficulty in them. I also mean talking to them with my voice the way that I talk on this podcast. I mm-hmm. do not like it when people dumb down their language for their kids, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. And I mean creating some responsibility for them and and talking to them as though they are fully capable of meeting and exceeding that level of responsibility. So I think we just have such a jacked up view of kids, truthfully. I think we are transitioning one of my favorite books that I am with some self-awareness will describe as badgering Beth to read is a book called All Joy, No Fun. And it's by Jennifer Senior, and it's so good. And she talks about how kids went from being economically they are now economically useless but emotionally priceless so we went from a place in which children um were treated i mean like look nobody wants to go to the early 1900s when they like beat kids and didn't believe that you could like that they felt pain i mean they like used to perform surgeries without painkillers on like babies all kinds of wacky crap okay we don't want to go back there but because they were economically valuable, I think there was a certain amount of, I mean, we just saw them completely differently. They were contributing. And now they're not economically valuable, but they're emotionally priceless, right? So that we, they, they are, they've become valuable to us in a way that I think is a little unhealthy. Like I kind of wanted to talk about, I said, I sent this to Beth that I was reading um, a study that we spend like twice as much time with our kids as we did 20 years ago. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think the way in which we have spent that time is not quite beneficial to every person involved. And what I mean is, I think that we've decided that children are so, so priceless and they're so valuable, but we don't really act like that all the time. Like, I feel like people alternate between talking about kids like they are either dumb and incapable of controlling themselves are geniuses capable of manipulating us at every turn. Like we can't decide which one they are. And there's also just a lot of like, and maybe that's because of the power differential, but there's just not a lot of awareness of like, this is a intact human being deserving of dignity, no matter how little they are. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there's just, there's still a lot of, and I, I just feel like I'm kind of talking at both sides of my mouth, and I don't know how to put this, but it's like we have to give them the dignity they deserve as individuals and also be understanding of what that, like, what a child is actually capable of. Like, there's a really interesting poll about how people way overestimate, like, developmentally what tor- what type of self-control children are capable of. Like, they think, like, a two-year-old is capable of, follow, like, be like self like of self control and they're just not they're just they're just not I hate to listen I'm hanging out with a two year old they're just not capable of it and so we think that they're like capable of controlling themselves but they're not they're just like sticking it to us all the time and so we're just like doing this weird dance I feel like all the time between not acknowledging that they deserve dignity and they deserve to be treated with respect but putting that in the proper framework of what they're actually capable of because they're not adults but they are human beings I guess that's what I'm saying You know why I think that is? I think we're not honest about our relationships with children. Yes, and why we have kids. Yes, true, accurate. It's all about us. Yep. That's Mm -hmm. why kids are so frustrating and annoying 
or should be little geniuses capable of everything. It's dependent on our mood. It's dependent Mm -hmm. on what we're looking for from them. When I was preparing for this episode. And that's what you mean about pets. We treat pets like that, too. That's right. They're just just foils for us. Yes. And when I was preparing for this episode, I Googled kids and happiness pages of how kids do or do not make the parents happy. What the heck? That is what is on our minds. Are people with kids happier than people who are childless? Do kids really increase your levels of different of oxytocin and whatever? I mean, come on, everybody. And I think that is the transition from people had kids to help on the farm to or in the store or whatever to now people have kids because make them happy. They think that it's going to improve your life in some mm-hmm. way, and they think it's what you're supposed to do, and they think it's going to be so re- enriching and rewarding emotionally. And all of that, from the farm hand to today, puts way too much pressure on these little lives yep. that exist on their own and not to be a foil for whatever we need from them at any given moment. So true. And I just sent Beth another article that we're putting in the show notes um, that was called, yes, you yes, you really can blame your parents. Because I think this is what's also missing from this conversation is we cannot talk about our kids until we talk about what it was like when we were kids and our relationships with our own parents. And this article was talking about attachment and how important attachment is for adults. And, you know, I was saying this to a mother, like, literally two nights ago who had a baby. And she was saying, like, I just worry. Should I make sure she's sleeping? And she cries. And I know people say I shouldn't go in there. And I was like, "Ah, uh-uh. Don't listen to that crap. You cannot spoil a baby. This whole spoiling babies, infants, no. Pick them up. She needs to know you'll be there. Like, people, I loved it so much. They were just talking about, like, it's important as a child if you learn that you can depend on other people for safety and comfort. And that's what your parents and your community teach you. And... You know, the reason I think I've said this on the on the podcast before, the reason I love um, I was by the luck of birth, I had a very, very, very good set of parents. And by the luck of birth, I was in a community in which I was surrounded by adults that made me feel secure and comfortable. And, you know, that's really what I'm looking to give my children. I want them to feel that they are secure and that they can come. They have a wide place to look for comfort and reassurance. That does not mean telling them they're right all the time. Because let me tell you something my mom never told me, that I was right. She always took the other person's side. And, you know, that was frustrating at the time. But, like, my mother had a very strong sense of, like, I'm here to make you feel safe and to make you feel comfortable. Like, not comfortable is maybe not the word. Comfort did. But I am not here to make you happy every second of every day. Because that's not a realistic. I mean, I think, honestly, I think this is a bigger, this is a bigger shift within our culture generally, is that we think, happiness is a goal there's a really great article and i can't remember the name of it but they were just like this is a new thing y'all like our great-grandparents were like sitting around pondering their happiness they were like man hope like suffering was like just that it was going to come everybody's way that's just the way it was you know my great 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 grandmother buried like 10 of 11 children okay like she was not sitting around pondering how to make her kids happier how i don't i would bet happiness was not even more that crossed her brain that often so i mean we're just we're in a new situation with how we parent how we were parented and it's just hard, but we have to we have to be honest with ourselves with our motivations and um, our reactions to this changing environment. Happiness is definitely a result of economic luxury, right? Mm-hmm. When you spend a bunch of time thinking about how to be happy, and I think a real disservice that we do for our kids is forgetting that in a lot of ways our public schools mix up our children more than adults ever mix themselves up across social and economic lines. And so if you are thinking about the experience of being a child and one child is sitting next to another where a set of parents is totally focused on that child's happiness and the other set of parents is focused on, are we going to have enough to eat this week? That is asking so much more of both of those children to be able to relate to each other through that than we would ask of ourselves as adults. But Mm -hmm. we do that every single day, all day, every single day. And in some ways, our kids are better at it because they practice it and we don't. So true. And so there's there's a give and take here of kind of learning from our children and also remembering what our roles are for them. I found this article from 2009 by Richard Wiseboard. This is in Psychology Today, and we'll put it in the show notes. And he writes, and I love this, 
both for their sake and for society's sake, we would do better to relinquish happiness as the main goal of child raising. I want to make the case for focusing instead on our children's maturity, maturity including the ability to manage destructive feelings, to balance and coordinate our perspectives and needs with those of others, to receive feedback constructively, to be reflective and self-critical, to fairly and generously assess our behavior is a strong basis for both morality and lasting well-being. I love that. So good. And that's the thing, too, I think, going back to you really have to look hard at your own childhood because I think all of that is made so much more difficult, sort of the self-reflection, if you're healing your own, if you're trying to use your children to heal your own raising. I just think that is a very dangerous pursuit and one that lots and lots of people engage in. And again, I say this from a place of privilege. I didn't have much to heal in my own childhood. But one of my favorite things I ever heard um, it was in a show called, I think I might have talked about it on, the sh- on one of the shows before, um, called Casual, where she says, children just want to hear I'm sorry and parents just want to hear I thank you. And so I think if we're tied up in that battle with our own parents of wanting them to say they're sorry for where they screwed up and then wanting to hear thank you because they were trying, then it's very difficult to to have a, a healthy engagement with our own kids because we're so we're rebattling that battle every single time um, with our own parents. And I think that's just that's really hard. That's why uh, God invented psychotherapy. Well, that's right, because so often we're doing that without knowing it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And what is beneath the surface and not ever brought to the surface and named can't be tackled. Like I remember this um, one. So this this is a good example of this small because, again, my parents did a mostly good job. I like to think anyway. Um, So when I was little, I was the star of the church Christmas program. It was a big deal. I had lots of lines and solos. I was the baby doll. It was a show about a toy store. I think there's some video of it. It's amazing. I know there's video of it, but I haven't put it online, but I should so y'all could enjoy because it's amazing. And my mother was not there. My mother went on a trip to a free trip to Alaska through my stepfather's work that was like all paid for. And my whole life, I carried this resentment that she was not there. And she was always very defiant in the face of it. Like, you need something to talk to your therapist about. Um, It was a free trip. Like, she was very defensive. And like, no, I didn't go. And it's not the end of the world. And then I'll never forget ever, we were standing in my grandmother's. I know exactly where we were standing. And my grandmother was like, because my grandmother was the one who like took me and I stayed with her or whatever. And she said, and my mom was standing there. We're like, standing in her bathroom. I don't know why all three of us were standing there where we were. And she said, you know, it tore up. She just, she felt so guilty about it. And I went, what? And my mom was like, yeah, I felt terrible. And I was like, well, why haven't you ever said that? <laughs> why didn't you ever said like, I did it. I, I think it was probably the right call, but I felt terrible about it. And she was like, well, I don't know. And it's like the second she said that, I literally never thought about it again. Like I was just like, oh, oh, well, I didn't know you felt bad. No, I don't care anymore. Like it's just that, again, that whole thank you, I'm sorry. The second you can feel like, but it's just so, so hard as a parent to say, I screwed up. And it's almost, Beth and I talked about, like, you almost have to start out and say, like, I'm going to screw this up. I'm going to do my best I can, but I'm going to screw this up. And it's really hard. Yeah, I'm absolutely screwing up every day. I know that I am. I think about the amount of time and energy I put into trying to get Jane, my six-year-old, to sit in timeout. Now that I have a two-year-old and have been through that once... My personal sense is that timeout is a fraud perpetrated on parents to make us it all is. feel like crap. Yep, timeout's stupid. I'll do timeout. I cannot work with timeout anymore, and and I have come to understand that I was just torturing myself and Jane by trying to make that work. And with Ellen, I just don't. Which doesn't mean she doesn't have consequences, and we're working through those things at an age appropriate level. But this whole idea of you screwed up and now I'm going to separate you from us and then we're going to fight the battle of whether you stay there or not. No. Done with that. And it's terrible. And look, if timeout works in your family, hooray for you. Good, good job. I'm not trying to be critical of anyone's parenting techniques. And that's a lot of it, right? I think we're all so fearful of screwing up that we take everything very personally. When you brought up attachment parenting, I instantly felt this need to go, well, wait a second, that doesn't mean that you have to co-sleep or you have to breastfeed or you have to do any of these things. Or you, like, you don't, right? There are lots of ways to achieve a sense of I'm here for you, you're secure, you're safe, and we have a loving relationship. Yeah, and that's the, like, not to throw Dr. Sears on the bus, but, like, he's made that, that attachment is important, and we've made it all about those things. 
Let's let go of that. Like like you said, like if we, we are doing a disservice to a huge population, if we say the only way to form a healthy attachment with your child is to co-sleep and breastfeed. Come on, y'all. We can be more creative than that. We can be. And we can approach all kinds of things in the ways that work best in our households. In my household, a huge thing that I have come to understand about both of my children is that they thrive on consistency and routine and sleep. Mm -hmm. My girls need a ton of sleep. They need a very structured routine that does not deviate often. And that is the environment that they function most effectively in. Yep. And that is a way to, I think, give them that sense of attachment parenting. They know that we love them and that's why we create our environment around these kind of boundaries that really work for them. But that's hard and it's hard to talk about without other people feeling judged as you talk about what's works, what works for you. Well, and here's the other thing. With this economically useless but emotionally priceless, the, and, the whole, and then even look at it in the time spent article I talked about, we are putting way too much pressure on ourselves. Way, 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 way too much. You are deserving of love because of your inherent dignity as a human being, not because of how good of a parent you are or how bad of a parent you are. Like, I just think that we've made parenting the sole source of value, particularly for women. And like, we are all like, look, my Facebook feed is not a wash and wine memes because we're not all feeling the pressure. Okay. Like we all need to just back it on up again a, ba- a bit because as much as I really don't like it when I say you should not spank and I'm not going to give a if it works for your family disclaimer here because you should not spank your children. Sorry. That's just how that's not how I feel. That's what the science says. I'm trying to not make allowances, traditional female allowances. You should not spank. If you say, well, I don't spank, and people say, well, I spank when I turned out fine. I was spanked, I turned out fine. Like, I really bristle at that reaction. One, because, turn, like, I survived is not really what I'm aiming for as a parent. Like, I would like to grow and evolve and be better at it than my mom, who I thought did a great job. But, like, so I really bristle at the, like, it'll turn out okay, we survived dismissive attitude to sincere attempts to get better however the nuanced thing is yeah like we we have survived at a human race and people were like really super bad at parenting like terrible terrible abusive emotionally distant and the human race survived like for thousands of decades with literally no one playing with their kids so maybe just you know pump the brakes a little bit hold both things in your hand that like yes kids are resilient the human race is resilient and we've made it this far with some, like, really trivial parenting, so every mistake is not the end of the world. But also we're trying to improve and get better. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think one of the things that's so hard about that is what you said about parents making parenting a job and having that be a source of identity. And I also think that the way we approach work has a similar problem. I really liked this article that Debbie sent us from Erica Komazar, who we've talked about before. She's a psychotherapist and writes a lot about the neuroscience of parenting. And this article is called, Do We Overvalue Children's Cognitive Development Over Their Emotional Development? Yes. Was that what the article said? Did I guess correctly? (laughs) So here are a couple of excerpts that really spoke to me. She said, parents often confuse their own happiness with work achievement and success, overvaluing their work as the core of their identity rather than how well and how deeply they relate to and connect with other people in their lives who they love. All the amens to that. Mm -hmm. And then she said, what good is it if you have all the academic or professional success in the world but cannot regulate your emotions, relate to others, sustain deep connections, and feel empathy for those around you? Self-esteem is the ability to feel good about yourself in spite of your failures, not because of your accomplishments, which I think is genius and something that as parents, we really have to talk about. My parents did a wonderful job parenting me too. I will say that every bit of my self-esteem is built on accomplishment. And that is something that I have spent a lot of time working on as an adult. I don't blame my parents for that. I'm not mad at them. I think that they were supporting me and excited with me for all the things that I did as a child. And I think all of that came from a loving place. And when I think about 
what I want to learn and try to build on, I need to do a better job with the failure side of the equation for my kids Mm -hmm. because I struggle with failure. I struggle. I struggle not just with failure. I struggle with anything that is other than all the gold stars. You're the best. You're amazing. I have a hard time with that stuff. And if I'm trying to raise someone who's a little farther down the path than I am, that that is a big area of focus for me. Letting my girls know that achievements are great, good for you, and they are a very small part of who you are overall. Well, and here's what I want to add to that. I saw Lady Bird this weekend, which is phenomenal. And I think reason part of the reason it's phenomenal is it's like got all of this stuff that we're talking about wrapped up in it. So there's this beautiful moment. It's mainly about the relationship between Lady Bird and her mother. Um, and the mother is this beautiful, nuanced character um, played by Laurie Metcalf. All the praise hands for Laurie Metcalf. I still feel like Laurie Metcalf is a little bit of my, like, sort of my aunt, just because I watched so much Roseanne going up. But she's so good in this movie. And so there's this beautiful, there's a lot of beautiful moments. But there's all this interesting conflict. So the father has been laid off. And so while she's simultaneously telling her daughter, like, you are not working hard enough, you do not have enough, um, you're not motivated enough, you don't, you're not self-striving enough, like, you need to be more aware of, like, um, how important it is to succeed. And then her, the father gets laid off, and she's, like, looking in the mirror, and she's like, you know, success is not the only thing that matters. And your father's having to learn that, and your father's depressed because he's using all these external indicators of why, of his worth. And then she's saying... You know, you you see her and she's this very big hearted, the mother, big hearted woman in her work. And she's um, open hearted and helps people. And she just says the most awful things to Lady Bird. And like when they're fighting, just like you're useless. You'll never be able to turn anything yourself into anything. And so like this woman who clearly values human connection is pushing away arguably the most valuable connection in her life, which is the one to her daughter. And she the movie just is so graceful in this dance we all do with ourselves and with our parents and with our culture and it's just such a beautiful examination of all these conflicting messages we send ourselves and each other success is the only thing that matters but especially to women but you have to be a kind and connected person while also being hugely successful and you know your worth is not really wrapped up in that but really it's the only thing that matters you know like it was just they did it I can't I can't say enough enough about it but it's like you know I love I think pop culture and stories like that have the power to illustrate those moments in really beautiful ways, and that movie certainly did. Well, I think a thing that underlies a lot of what you just talked about and this whole discussion is that being a good parent who develops emotionally healthy children, not just happy children, Mm -hmm. requires an unbelievable amount of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. That's what I took away, and that's that word has become so much more prominent because of Brené Brown's work. Going back to this 2009 article, um, Richard Wiseboard offered some principles for developing a mature child instead of just a happy child. And I thought we could talk about those for a second because they all, to me, come down to vulnerability. And I think they're very interesting. So the first one is the self becomes stronger and more mature, less by being praised than by being known, which hit me like a ton of bricks when I read it. So good. good. Okay. Last Lady Bird reference, I promise. There's this beautiful line in the movie where she's talking about how much she hates Sacramento and she's writing her college essay and the nun who's read her college essay says, you really love Sacramento. And she says, no, I don't. I mean, I guess I just pay attention. And she says, isn't that the same thing? It's so true. It's just like being showing up and being present and aware and recognizing someone else. Like, that's really growth and love, you guys. Love it. I had a lot of fear when I got pregnant with our second daughter for a lot of reasons. And I started seeing a therapist again because therapy had been very helpful to me at other points in my life. And in one of my very first sessions, my therapist said, how many people in your life really know you? Mm. And at that time, it was a tiny number. Mm. And I think that there is so much suffering for us as adults because so few people really know us. And I don't know that a lot of modern parenting is about getting to know your kids as much as it is about managing them. Yeah. 
something that's been really helpful for us, I've tried to be really interested in our kids. And that sounds silly, but interested in a very like curiosity, non-judgmental way. Curiosity driven and non-judgmental way. So we have, um, I've talked about this on Pansy Politics before. My older daughter, Jane, who is six, since she was four, has been keeping a journal, which just means every night she writes one sentence about her day. And when she couldn't write, we drew a picture and we kind of made it through. (laughs) But we try to reflect on her day and it's completely up to her what to say, which means that we have beautiful entries like my sister Ellen came home from the hospital today Two things like I ate cotton candy today. Okay. <laughs> it is not always, but it's, but it's fascinating to know what sticks out to her. Yeah, it is. Instead of to impose on her what we think was the most interesting thing in every day. At dinner every night, uh, we we try to make it a priority for all four of us to sit down at the table and eat dinner together. And every night at dinner, we just ask each person, what was your favorite thing today? And even my two-year-old answers that. And very often, my two-year-old answers something that did not happen today. (laughs) That happens. That's that's the best. It's the best. That's the best, right? It's still really good information about what has made an impression on her. Or like definitely something that happened like five days ago. You're like, well, that was okay. We'll go with it. Literally, Ellen, we saw, we went to the museum center in Cincinnati several months ago to see this exhibit of Star Wars costumes. Most days, Ellen says her favorite thing for today was the Star Wars costumes. (laughs) I mean, I don't know why that like carved into her brain, but she loved that. But, you know, I feel like I know something about her that I wouldn't know if I weren't asking that question every day. So I'm all for these exercises, and and I think that gives them a sense of ritual, too, which I hope is important. But all these exercises that just let me know my kids better and not be molding them as much as understanding them have been really valuable to me. Well, here's what's so, I think, hard, though, that I see that really bugs me, and I've done it, too. It's a really fine line to walk because what I also have done in the past and what I see people do is, like, wanting to like categorize your kids and like put them in a box that happens. And I feel like this happens a lot with gender and this happens a lot with birth order. Well, he's my second. He's wild. Oh, well he, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, and particularly I see this and do it myself in which I'm defining them in contrast to their siblings, which I really don't want to do. Everybody can be a mommy's boy and live next door to mommy. We do not have to define ourselves as different from, you know what I mean? But like you, it's like so inherent in our culture that like I've done it and been like, wait, why am I doing this? Um, when Amos was born, like he was like a harder baby than Griffin. And so I, I, I was like, you know, basically complaining about him all the time, what a hard baby he was. And then I started to notice that like people didn't see him as a sweet baby like I was like I was defining how people saw him you know like they were like oh there's Amos what's what have you complained about today you know what I mean and I was like oh my god what have I done here I'm a terrible mother like you know like I think it's so easy like you have to really come at like honest like you said honest curiosity because there is a I think there's a big sort of undercurrent in our culture that pushes you just to like stereotype them I think some of that, too, is so that we know how to deal with them. I think we're searching for a roadmap. Yep. Especially when your kids start to get into school. I feel myself sometimes thinking, well, like, wait, is Jane more artistic or is she more athletic or is she more sciencey? Because I want to know what should I be encouraging and developing Mm -hmm. in her. And look, the answer is she's six. It's all of it. Who knows? Right? And those are her decisions. That's what I always say about Felix. And I'm like, you know, Griffin, because... There are certain things about their personalities that sort of shine through from the beginning. But, like, Felix, I don't know. Drew's still at ease, too. Like, I don't know exactly what kind of personality he has. Like, he's two. He's sort of a blank sheet still. Like, he's different than the other ones, but not that different. And Jane expresses interest in such a variety of things. If I start to box her in now, we're going to be missing something. This is a child who will spend the weekend building the most intricate art projects you can imagine from a bizarre array of materials. At the same time, every Monday when she has the opportunity to check out a library book on her own, she brings home a book about an element. Literally, (laughs) we have a book about lead in my house right now. She's all over the place. And 
I don't think it's my job to funnel her into one specific path at six. But I think a lot of parents feel like I need to get them on a track. Right. Because if she's going to be an artist and she needs to be a Juilliard level artist and if she's going to be an athlete, she needs to be playing soccer at two. So she's going to be ready for scholarships. And if she's going Mm -hmm. to be a mathematician, I need to get her in the math club today. And I think that we have just kept raising the bar of what academic success looks like for our kids, that we are kind of missing the curiosity and the exploration. Well, so the second point that he brings up is that children come to be reflective and self-critical chiefly when we encourage their self-observations and we we model for them honest self-reflection. Thirdly, when we demonstrate a capacity to change a troubling behavior as a result of our self-reflections or as a result of feedback, we model a vital aspect of maturity. This is a very hard one for me. Four and five, I'll just run through because I think they touch on things we've talked about before. Among the many ways that children learn to deal with difficult feelings such as frustration and anger is when we model the appropriate expression of these emotions and don't let our own frustration and anger corrode our relationships with our children. Also a difficult one. So hard. And I have started trying to speak my emotions more. Yeah, I do that. I just say, I'm really angry right now. Yes, me too. It's helpful. I literally just model Daniel Tiger. I'm not even trying to lie. Daniel Tiger is brilliant in a lot of ways. It's so good. I mean, the parents are, like, on point. They're very, like, I'm just, that's my goal. I'm just trying to be like Daniel Tiger's mom. When you feel two feelings at the same time, that's Oh, my God, that's so good. That's genius. It's genius. It's so good. Oh, it's so good. Because why can't we feel two feelings at the same time? And why do we tell ourselves that it's such a bad thing? God bless you, Daniel Tiger. And then the last thing he says, one critical way children learn to control hostile feelings toward others as well as coordinate their needs with others is by developing the ability to take a third person perspective, stepping outside a relationship. We can specifically ask children to imagine how they would handle a difficult situation if they were being their best self or imagine how a person they admire would handle the situation. That's what my mom, you know, when I say she never took my side, that's really what she was doing. She was always like, well, what about this? What, how would they feel if you were, how would you feel if it was this way? Or maybe they felt this way she was really good at that and that's what I try to do as a parent too so if I have a an interaction with one of my kids where they're being impossible I try to step away and say you know what I can't control them but I can control me so Mm -hmm. how can I be the mom I want to be in this interaction instead of just reacting the way that I'm feeling right now in summary parenting is hard (laughs) being a human is hard and raising humans is hard I think that about covers it I think it does too Complex and hard and nuanced. Look at that. And great and awful and challenging and all the things. Mm-hmm. But it is not about making a happy child every single day. No, no. That we that much we can agree on. Well, we want to leave this discussion as we leave all of our discussions with um, something beautiful for you to reflect on this week. There is a poem that has been a part of my life since high school. I believe that Amanda, who I know is a Pantsuit Politics listener, gave this to me a long time ago. And I have thought about it my entire life. And it's a really good blueprint for the kind of person I want to be and the kind of people that I would like my kids to be. So this is The Invitation by Oriah Mountain Dreamer. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dream, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you have touched the center of your own sorrow, if you have been opened by life's betrayals or have become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own. If you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, to be realistic, to remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you are telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself. If you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. If you can be faithless and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it is not pretty every day, and if you can source your own life from its presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand at the edge of the lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes. 
It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done to feed the children. It doesn't interest me who you know or how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Nuanced Life. Until we speak with you again next week, keep it nuanced, y'all. the nuance life please be sure to subscribe rate and review us in your favorite podcast player and follow us on instagram at the nuanced life the nuanced life is produced by pansy politics special thanks to nicholas and chad for all their help and support thanks to dante lima who composed and performed our theme music to support pansy politics and the nuanced life visit patreon.com forward slash pantsuit politics